Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. On a cold February night in 1983, Wanda Lopez was stabbed to death while she worked in a Corpus Christi, Texas gas station. 21-year-old Carlos De Luna was arrested, and over the next six years, through his trial and subsequent imprisonment, he protested his innocence, declaring that it was another Carlos who committed the crime. Prosecution insisted that the other Carlos was a phantom that didn't exist. The film is called The Phantom, and it's part of the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival lineup, uh, and a wonderful, wonderful film, very well done. We're joined today by the director of the film, Patrick Forbes. Patrick, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, and thank you for the flattery. Any director responds very well to that. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) well, it is. It's really well done. How did you find out about this story? Well, I was doing a film about WikiLeaks, about Julian Assange, and indeed we, uh, which oddly enough, wound up at the South by Southwest Festival. And while we were making it, uh, my researcher kept tugging at my sleeve and saying, look, have you read this article about this case in Texas? And I went, yeah, come on, it's another, you know, misadventure story. I don't want to be, of which there are and were tragically a lot. I don't want to do that too much. And then she said, no, their point about this is innocent man executed. And that, she kept hammering at me. And that of itself started to make me think, you know what? That shorn of all the politics is the stuff of drama, is the stuff of film, is the stuff of, you know, great books. It's intriguing. And that got me started. And so I went over and I met the guy I knew whose research had uncovered this possible misadventure. And I thought, and he said to me, all right, you get the rights. Hollywood was beating on his door. And to his regret, he, I suspect, um, gave, uh, well, not he says, gave them to us. And we started this odyssey. And we started off on a, I always start every documentary with a sort of clean slate. Let's go find out what happened. Let's get everybody involved to talk. Because if you only listen to one side or you're only espousing one view, you're not making a documentary, you're making a commercial um, from one point of view or another. So off we went. And that's how I got involved. Well, there are a lot of compelling elements in the crime. And you are very meticulous about kind of reconstructing the what happened the night of. Yeah. Um, and from and the way you do it is, I, I, which I appreciate, you do it from the police perspective. Sort of the initial, how we're introduced to what happened, it more or less, is coming from the established, what so called so called established point of view, which I think is important because I think anything like this, you've got to give the proper respect to the people who said this is what happened. Well, okay, let's let's unravel this. Is that? Is that fair? No, no, I think it's absolutely vital because I don't think, you know, all too often books or documentaries paint events as though, hang on, this is almost like there is a self-evident truth and everybody involved in something going wrong is either a villain or a psychopath. And that's not how life works. The night of Wanda's death, you can exactly understand why the police would arrest the guy who was arrested. You know, there's been a terrible murder. 
there's a woman, a young woman, hideously attacked around the corner after half an hour, you find a guy hiding under a truck with uh, only wearing his, you know, wearing only his pants and they pull him out. His breath stinks of alcohol and something worse. And guess what? He's got a record, a record of attacks on women. So no surprise he gets arrested. And I think that's really important to, to show. And it's also important to show that when he gets to trial, he gets what is ostensibly a fair trial, you know, well, not, not a fair trial, but the, the verdict that is reached is, on the face of it, the correct one, because he's not great on the witness stand. He lies twice and is caught out. His attorney, who's a very good attorney, by a quirk of the Texas justice system, doesn't have enough time to prepare, has no money to fund any research, and they're up against a brilliant attorney who destroys them on the witness stand, you know, destroys them in court. And so, again, you can understand why the verdict of guilty is given. And I, if you're making documentaries, it goes back to my initial obsession with truth. That was the truth. That is what everybody believed. And it seemed perfectly reasonable. And it's only subsequently that bits and pieces start to come out. And it's only subsequently that you can see that something went terribly wrong. And that's that's a fascinating state of affairs. Yeah. What was the thread that you feel like in the story, going back to the people who we get to know in the film, was there one particular person or one particular fact that they're championing or, or essentially calling attention to where the story begins to turn in another direction? Well, I think there are two key people who who start to turn it in a in a different direction. And again, they're not acting because they're crusaders for truth and justice and or against the death penalty. Exact reverse in both cases. One's a journalist who's just looking for an interview with a man on death row where he confesses his guilt. And she keeps at it, keeps turning up in Huntsville, Texas, where they have their death row and saying, you know, come on, tell me, Carlos, tell me, Carlos. And he always maintains his innocence. And she begins to think, oh, hang on, this is really crazy. What's going on? And in parallel with her, the lawyer for the victim, um, who's a, fighting the, uh, the gas company for some compensation, he's doing his due diligence and he discovers a ton of photographs of the scene on the night of the murder. And it's covered in blood. And, and there is none found in reality, on the body of the guy who's been arrested for the crime, which is almost impossible. Right. So that's the moment. And they're they're both great people, and they're both friends now, and or both were one has sadly just passed. And they're instantly human. You people who you could sit down with a beer with and they just go, man, that was how it happened. And it's only on the night of Carlos Dillon's execution that Karen Boudry, who's the journalist, she gets a call. She gets Carlos's last call at 10.30 at night, and he says, look, I'm innocent. Right. And actually, technically under law, that statement is admissible evidence. It is actually something that would technically should prompt a re-examination of the case. And she just says, I couldn't believe it. God, I realized at that moment that this guy was innocent, that his protestations weren't just some jailbird, you know, trying to win my sympathy. Now, when you say that, do you mean that there's a actual sort of 
technical uh, carve out in the law that says if someone literally a few minutes from being executed continues yeah. to claim their innocence, that's the grounds or that's the grounds. It's an admissible piece of evidence. And oh. yeah, no, it's a it's it's a very significant thing. I mean, one of the things I don't want to do, and I always feel when you make a documentary, you should almost it's like it's like reading some, you know, what you really want is a PowerPoint is something that goes X marks the spot. This is a really significant moment. Here it is. Yeah, people, pay attention now. You can go to sleep again for the next five minutes. But anyway, yeah, it is a really significant thing. The, the other significant thing we'll come on to, which we discovered by complete accident, but that was, that was uh, as a result of my uh, filming technique, if you want to call it like that. Um, well, well I, I'm going to caution you. I don't want you to give too much away. And you let, if there's flashing red lights here for me, I don't want you to tell me everything you know, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd be here for hours and you'd be very bored. So don't you worry. <laughs> well, because I really want people to see the Phantom. And as I said, it's opening at uh, Tribeca. And is that a world premiere? What is that for? Yeah, that's a world premiere. That okay. is indeed. And then, and then it will be uh, in theaters, uh, I believe, on uh, July second. So it's being yep. released here in the United States. So we talked about it before we started. And for people who are looking for a frame of reference, they often are. Well, what is this like? What is the story like? We talked about it a little bit. This will, in some ways, remind you of, in terms of the sort of the contours of the story. Uh, of uh, Errol Morris's groundbreaking uh, film, Thin Blue Line. That's not to take away anything from either film, but it's just sort of, it's Texas, and there's a man on death row, and there are protestations of innocence. It absolutely is, because that movie, as we were discussing beforehand, is deep in both your and my psyche. It was... If I had to cite one particular movie that got me started on what we laughingly call my career, that's it. Because I just thought, wow, that's interesting. This is as exciting, as moving, and possibly rather more important than any drama or indeed any book. And it, wow, it's going to change something. Um, and yeah, so okay. then I come to make this movie and I think to myself, oh my God, I'm in danger of having to pay homage to this film. What am I going to do about it? Because <laughs> what I don't want to do is replicate it. And also documentaries and particularly documentary features have got slightly, and I'm guilty of this, I should say in advance, got stuck in a rut. There's the talking head interview followed yeah. by, oh, a beautiful shot followed by another talking head interview. And often the people who you see at minute 90 are still in the same room as they were at minute ooh, one. So it's kind of boring. So I thought... Actually, we want something that is exciting and vibrant and also frees the interviewee from the need, you know, enables them to say, hey, it was like this. I was standing here. I could see this happening. So what I decided I'd do is I would do lots of short interviews with people in the places where things happened. So they could say, wow, I was in this courtroom. I can't believe I'm back. It's back. You know, we got the, the lovely pathologist who walks into the room in which he has dissected 4,000 bodies. But, and it's not just an excuse for reminiscence, it's also bringing that, the situation alive and bringing them alive yeah. because they can say, hey, it was over there, I saw him there. And there's a terribly moving moment where one of the women that was attacked by one of the men, I don't want to give too much away, I'm bearing your injunction in mind, in <laughs> attacked by one of the men in this movie is opposite the house where it happened. 
And suddenly you realize the horror of what she went through because yeah. the house isn't big, it's tiny. And you realize she was inside with one man with a knife was intent on one thing only, and that was to hurt her. And you watch her reliving this and you understand it immediately. Yeah, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Patrick Forbes. He is the director, documentary film called The Phantom. As I said, it's uh, premiering at uh, this year's Tribeca Film Festival, as well as being released into theaters Friday, July 2nd. So coming up very quickly. So be on the lookout. There are a couple of things that I want to introduce into our conversation that I think had, have a, a strong bearing on the, the progression, the arc of this story in this case. And that is, there is uh, an institutional momentum that takes over in cases, right? And yeah. I know that for a fact that the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court has actually ruled that once you get past a certain point in a death penalty case, it's a point of no return, even apparently because I, Judge Scalia issued a very famous ruling in this regard that basically, I don't care if you show me a photo of somebody else killing this person, you're going to die at the hands of the state because we reached this, so to me, arbitrary point of no return in, in, in deciding these cases. And I don't well, think you're stating that, or maybe I am. I don't know. No, no, you don't make it. What it is, and it took me a while to understand this, because the English legal system, which is very similar, but also very different to the United States, basically, once you're past your first trial in the States, appeals are not about the substance of the trial, i.e. what happened, did he really do it or not. It's whether the trial itself right. was conducted correctly which right. seems completely mad because if actually there's a massive new piece of evidence, exactly as you described, that says, well, hang on, somebody else did this, let's introduce it. If for whatever reason you can prove that it was perfectly okay that it wasn't introduced in the first trial, then you're going to die. And again, and I think it is particularly prevalent in Texas. I have some tangential uh, sort of uh, anecdotal uh, evidence of that. Some people I know that have been that were involved in Texas and lived in Texas that and there does seem to be this sort of we can't admit where I mean, this happens everywhere. It happens in Los Angeles. It happens. It, institutions are 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 really it's really difficult for an institution to admit failure or sure. that it was wrong. Right. Well, not only an institution. We're all bad at admitting we go wrong. So that's right, right. in essence, you know, you know, a human being. It's a sort of it's a very human failing. People, I'm sure you well, I've dealt with my children and asked them whether they did something wrong and they're not always so <laughs> happy to fess up. Yeah. So so but I agree in Texas there is a particular problem. A lot, you know, you look at the statistics on executions and a lot of them are happening in Texas, mm. and you do wonder if you know i'm sure the state of justice in texas is as it is elsewhere in which case mistakes will be made and if yeah. executions are happening well some of those executions are probably not justified this one is the first time that you can conclusively prove that it was not justified yeah. um, and we chart that and uncover some evidence of it one of the last states that hasn't actively considered eliminating the death penalty, many states across the country, I think it's over 30 now, have actually thrown the death penalty out as an option. 
So there is progress, but not Texas. And again, I think there is, and you get into this, there's a history there, sort of the Republic of Texas, you know, the battle skirmishes with the Mexicans. There's sort of this frontier mentality yeah. that is still part of the DNA of people in Texas, at least law enforcement. Absolutely. Well, I, I would, and again, it's not, it's not only Texas per se, it's also Corpus Christi where this crime happens. It's, it's the heartland of where those battles between the Republic of Texas and the Mexican <clears throat> nation took place. Yeah. And it, for some years, it was the frontier. So there is, there's a sort of litany of low level and less low level aggravation between races that happens there that gives the that gives a particular edge to this crime, which and, I hope we bring and, forward. And that's the other part of this equation, yeah. which is the 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 victim and the perpetrator or traitor, yeah, perpetrator were Hispanic. Yeah. In a very poor part of town, you know, the marginalized in a in a in a system that marginalizes people in a court system that doesn't really care, to be honest. Yes, I think that's absolutely, I have to say, again, we don't want to, neither of us wants to dissent a cliche, but I think that there was a real feeling amongst the Hispanic community, which is best expressed by one of the lawyers in this case, he said, one more dead Mexican, they don't give a shit. And, but again, I want to go back to this because you interview everybody that is significant and still alive, right? That matters. Absolutely. And, and so you get, this is a boiling stew of a whole lot of different elements. And we do get an opportunity to get to know Carlos de Luna to the extent we can. It's archival footage, but the people who knew him, the brother, you know, there are people in the film who bring him to life. And he, I mean, he's no saint. I'm not, he didn't, he, you know, he had his issues. Well, you'll see the film. Go see the film. Uh, the, <laughs> and, uh, oh, Patrick Forbes, thank you. Thank you for The Phantom. Thank you for uh, uh, for being here. Uh, the film, again, is going to be released uh, on July 2nd, so be looking for it. And it world the world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival, which is technically still underway, so you can check it out virtually as well. Patrick Forbes, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's been my pleasure and privilege. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.